Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. I, I forgot to say, because I'm uh, conscious of not wanting to talk too much about myself, that um, when I was in China, we were doing student ministry, mostly. Um, I was with a small foundation from Hong Kong. And when I came back, later um, we joined OMF, which is a successor to CIM. So I can suggest that all of the stuff about Hudson Taylor was totally correct, no mistakes at all. Um, but what we did when we joined OMF, and we were based in the UK, we were the first missionaries recruited to work with Chinese people in the UK. And we worked in student ministry, mostly in the north of England, but I did actually speak twice to the Chinese church in Oxford. And most of our time was spent preaching, teaching, discussing, um, sometimes arguing, uh, with the Chinese about life, the universe, and everything. And that's kind of where the motivation comes from for looking at um, Acts 17. So what has Athens got to do with Beijing? It was the church father Tertullian who famously asked, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? By which he meant, of course, what have Greek thought and philosophy got to do with Christianity and its biblical heritage? And although we live and minister in this modern, globalized world, as Christians, we might still wonder, well, what has Athens got to do with Beijing? Now, in a rather short message, I, my aims are admittedly more, more modest than Tertullian. So I need to keep it fairly short and fairly concise. And in, in doing that, I suppose I will raise more questions than I answer. But I think that's okay, too. Um, one of the great strengths of evangelicalism is its ability to make things short, snappy, and easy to understand. That is also one of its failings. So questions are not wrong in themselves. So let's just, um, yeah, roll with the punches, if you like, as we look at the text. And I want to look at Paul's famous discussion in, in the Areopagus and draw parallels with today's China and with Chinese students in particular. So it would be very helpful if you have the text open. I'll jump straight in at verse 16. So here's Paul waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens. And it seems at this time, when he's been there on his own, he's investigated the city, and I find his motivation and priorities very interesting. I mean, what would you or I do if we were holed up in a famous city for a few days waiting for our friends to come? We'd probably go and see the sights or find a good restaurant. But Paul's life was completely given over to the gospel. Paul comes to the city as an evangelist, someone who was passionate about Christ. And he also looked at the city as a pastor with concern for the people there who knew so much about so many things, but unfortunately had no knowledge of the greatest truth. And Paul was concerned that this great city was full of idols, as we have just heard. Athens had literally hundreds of gods. Now it's funny because I've often heard preachers saying that idols in the ancient world were physical. Whereas today, ours are abstract, our worldviews and our ideologies and everything else. And in a sense, that's true. But I think looking at this text again and again and again, it's important to realize that although Athens did contain many physical idols, this great city and its civilization also embraced a wide range of intellectual and conceptual idols. Let's not make a simple dichotomy between the graven image and the modern Western or other mindset. No, actually, in many ways, they weren't that different from us today. And Paul is distressed. 
Not for himself, of course, he was sure of his faith in the Jesus who had appeared to him. But for Paul, the widespread presence and influence of idolatry were plain wrong. They were a violation of that which God has established. And more than that, Paul was also distressed because the influence of these idols meant that men and women did not know Jesus. For Paul, false belief was unbelief, or worse, and that disturbed him. Now, after more than 60 years of what we call New China, the country is a mixture. There is idolatry and false religion alongside people who are genuinely seeking for truth. And David talked about this spectrum. That's one of my great words in talking about China, because we, we, we can see this continued power of traditional Chinese beliefs, in a sense even stronger than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago, next to the, the, the force of modern globalization. China is kind of bewildering. I was in Beijing in September last year, painting my sister-in-law's living room, if you please. But, but, but while I was there, you know, you, you can see the temple, you can see the old-fashioned Chinese religion, you can see all this stuff next to the concrete and glass towers. China's, China's idols now include science, evolution, socialism, nationalism, ambition, materialism, consumerism with a big capital C with flashing lights on it, as well as old-fashioned Buddhism, Confucianism, and folk religion. There are so many things which can take the place of the one true God. I have a student, an Australian, working in China, and to help him with his PhD research, I was recently reading a paper on consumerism in China. And I learned that almost 50% of Chinese young people felt that money was either as important or more important than friendship. And that money was either as important or more important than ideas. That's a pretty strong force of consumerism. Look at verse 17 and 18 with me, if you would. Here's Paul now reasoning with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. And of course, he meets these two schools of philosophy. But I like the way that verse 17 begins. It begins so. I remember learning exegesis. We were told, what's the therefore, therefore? Right? So the so connects the thing together. So, so Paul is talking with the people in the city. Why? Because he saw that people were lost and confused. And Paul, of course, begins in the synagogue to help his own Jewish compatriots know the full meaning of their faith as completed in the life and work of Christ. But Paul also goes into the marketplace and gets grips with those who are not Jewish, those who had no knowledge of the Bible. These people in the synagogue, of course, would have agreed with Paul in many areas, at least about God and the nature of the Bible. But the guys in the marketplace were totally different. Their view of life, of death, of philosophy, of morality was totally different from Paul's. So right here, very early on, in the fifth book of the New Testament, here is a guy doing real cross-cultural evangelism. And it reminds me so much of my time in China and with the Chinese here. So what is this babbler trying to say? Sometimes when we would talk with the, about the gospel with Chinese people, some were suspicious, or at least curious. And they asked us why we were doing it. I can remember the first time being stunned when a Chinese person said to me, what do you get out of this then? And we're all, you know, good, reformed people, 
Saved by grace, not by works. So immediately all this light start flashing. What do you, why are you doing this? Will God love you more if you get my scalp onto your evangelism belt? Will God bless you if you get more people into the church? And it really is this kind of thing coming from the left field where you have to understand these people don't think like we do. And it was fascinating to say to them, actually, I only have one concern, and that is that you know the truth. And that you have the best. And they were totally bowled over. Because so much of how they think is transactional. And I think there's this, there's this tremendous importance, whether it's in that culture or even our own, in a sort of post-Christian kind of age. There's this idea of what I've written here, gospel selflessness. A biblical other-focusedness, if you like long words. It speaks volumes. Why are you doing this? Because I want you to have what I have. I want you to have the best. Paul reasoned. And speaking about our faith, of course, is not just about reason in the narrow, kind of rational sort of sense. And in our experience, we're working with the Chinese. Many, many Chinese people were converted because of a combination of love and concern and intellectual argument. You know, we would crack the books on creation and, and evolution and, and all kind of heavy words and Chinese thought and Marxism. Great experience ministering among the Chinese. It stretches the mind. But time and time again, when Chinese people were baptized, in their testimony they would say, it was the love of the Christians. When I first came to UK, to Manchester or Oxford, wherever I was, you lent me pots and pans. You got me a bed. You helped me with winter clothes. So there's us, you know, work your socks off to try and communicate the gospel truth in Mandarin, learn about all these crazy terms. And they said, well, it was actually when you got me a bed that really tipped the balance. But of course, there is a role for rational thought and argument. And there's so much time spent with them discussing reasoning, sometimes looking foolish. Not them, me. And yet in this passage here, and this is a kind of, it goes over into the Chinese situation, I get the feeling that Paul's reasoning with the people in the marketplace was actually very kind of two-way. I think sometimes in our enthusiasm, sometimes in our passion, we can be a bit monodirectional in our communication. And we, you know, we were saying, shut up and listen. And if the, the, the Chinese person is saying, if you just stop talking and listen to what I'm saying, you might really understand what my problem is. And so there's a warning there. I think Paul was, was very open to listen to what these people were saying and then able to, at the right moment, to put his viewpoint across. And, yeah, I would encourage us to think about that a lot more. But what kind of people did Paul meet in the marketplace? Well, of course, apart from a place to buy vegetables and other things for the home, the marketplace was this kind of communication area. There was this idea about exchanging news and, and ideas and so on and so forth. And of course, from the text, we know that Paul met the Epicureans and the Stoics, two schools of philosophy which represent very different approaches to life. Now, if you're a modern European, you have to kind of get the books out and read about the Epicureans and the Stoics to find out what the, what the text means. But they're actually highly relevant to modern China. You see, the Epicureans have this belief that we are made of atoms and there's no soul, a very kind of material sort of way of looking at, at, at the world. And at death, we just disintegrate. 
there's no need to fear death or judgment. If there are gods, they're not interested in human affairs, and everything happens by chance. You don't need to fear the gods or pray to them. They don't need us, we don't need them. And while on earth, humanity's main aim should be pleasure. But early on, in fairness to them, not of a sensual or kind of indulgence sort. The original Pucker Epicureans, for them, pleasure meant peace of mind and freedom from disturbing cares. It was only later on, and of course by the time of Paul, that this sense of pleasure had begun to deteriorate into sensual gratification. Eat, drink, and be merry. As the Chinese say, Now the other group mentioned here is the Stoics, who held that humanity is part of nature, a kind of microcosm of it. There's, there's a creative reason which gives order to nature and which brings order to our lives. And so there's this very strong sort of living, living, living in harmony with nature and in a sense being self-sufficient. It was a virtue. And at, at death, our soul becomes part of this world soul. And of course, by the time of Paul, the Stoics were famous for their objectivity, their, their independence, and hence the English word stoical. Sort of gritting your teeth, head down, get on with it. Now, these are the Greeks, but funnily enough, these extremes can be found in China today. Remarkable. Some people in China reminded me so much of the Stoics. Self-sufficient. They gave the impression they could do anything. They could cope with any difficulty. And it's in the Chinese church, actually. You find those people. They could study harder than anyone else. They could carry something heavier than anybody else. Cold, wind, rain, they're not afraid. Strong, silent types. I can remember when I was in China, the first time I wanted to move a bag in the train station. And this foreign, my foreign affairs guy, who was supposed to look after me, he said, hey, walai, walai, walai. Chinese walai means I'm coming. Literally means I'm, I'll do it for you. He said, you can't, you can't carry that. You're a Westerner. You can't carry heavy bags. <laughs> so you think we have everybody in, when we want to move a heavy bag in UK, we have a bunch of Chinese guys to move our luggage. But there's this sense of we're strong, we can, we can trickle, we can eat bitterness. And often you find these people in the countryside, or those who are strongly influenced by the communist idea and the socialist man. But some of these people are fading off, and what we see much more of in the modern China is, of course, the Epicurean. Those who have money, a lot of money. I want to enjoy themselves. I've been taken out by relatives in China to restaurants in Beijing, and when I saw the bill, I was horrified, except I wasn't, I wasn't paying for it. But the amount of money that people can spend on food, on cars, on fancy flats, clothes, it's unbelievable. If you grew up, uh, well, I was born in 1966, so the China that I knew was cold and rather, what would you say, um, monochrome. There was no color there. And now to be in China and see, boom, it's just astonishing. But these people are those who, in a sense, don't know what the future holds and don't really care. They've lost all faith in the party, all faith in politics. It's about having a good time. And the more money you have, the better, because you can get out if things go wrong. And China is now an extremely consumerist society, full of brands everywhere. And now it's all about food, drink, fashion, expensive goods, and sex. So these are the two extremes, if you like. And of course, to borrow from David again, there is this whole spectrum in the middle. But just staying with these two extremes, you know, how do you communicate the gospel 
to this rugged individual who needs no one and no thing? And how do you communicate the gospel to the pleasure seeker? What do you say to that person? Don't pursue those things in the here and now, and after you die, you'll go to heaven, everything will be nice. It doesn't really cut it with those kind of people. We need to do our homework a lot more. And so the, the Chinese would remind me, the Chinese people would meet reminded me so much of the Athenians. And they'd be very keen to listen and very keen to dispute with us, and sometimes they would accuse us of babbling, especially if you're doing it all in Chinese. And then you have this claim, of course, Christianity is a foreign religion. Why didn't Jesus come to the Chinese? Why wasn't Jesus, uh, Jesus incarnated with black hair and black eyes? You know, and I'd say, well, he wasn't British either, but I don't have a problem with it. Why, why wasn't Jesus Chinese? I don't know. But there's actually a warning for us here as we present the gospel. Do we present a gospel that can sometimes be too westernized? You know, Hudson Taylor's wearing Chinese clothes back in 1865, way ahead of his time. But it's actually easier to wear a Chinese hat than it is to get inside the Chinese mind or to get out of your own Western mind if you're a Westerner. So this whole idea of how do we keep, how do we remain faithful to this truth, but in such a way that it can make sense to someone from another part of the world, it's actually a very, very big challenge indeed. It is not easy. And of course, for many Chinese, we would meet students coming to UK to study for PhDs in rocket science or whatever it was. People coming back from the dead sounds like babbling. Total madness. And I think, again, it's very helpful for us to remember, especially if you don't come up from a Christian background, there are many ideas in Christianity that sounded weird to us at first. For us, it's second nature. Sit here on Sunday morning, some guy raving on about the resurrection. Yeah, that's fine. It's the center of our faith. We can almost become kind of blasé about it. But if you can, if you come from a non-Christian background, wind back the tape and remember when you first heard it and you thought these people are out to lunch. Because we need to understand that as we, we gain, or we start to get to grasp with people who still think that we're out, of lunch, out to lunch. So how do we start to discuss scientific matters with them in a way that doesn't just sound like something doctrinaire or pat or simplistic? And it's not easy. So what did they do with Paul? Verse 19 to 21. They took him to the Areopagus, of course, and there they said to him, what's this new teaching? May we know it. You're bringing strange ideas to our ears. You're not kidding. Verse 21, all the people there spent all their time talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So again, this reminds me of the Chinese. Some people would say you're babbling. Some people would say, we want to hear you. There are sincere people who seek after truth. It's very encouraging, the sense of the freshness of the gospel, the very unfamiliarity of the gospel is attractive because we can, in a sense, almost start with a, a fresh sort of slate or a nice clean page, if you like. There are many people among Chinese, despite consumerism, despite suspicion, despite the, the resurgence of, of leftist ideas in China, if you like, there are many people who still have this sense of there's a deeper meaning to life and we want to know what it is. And I think it's very interesting for us to read about Chinese history to understand, if you can, just this sense of crisis that has happened since, especially 1989, the Tiananmen Square incident. But it's this, this whole gradual erosion of faith in the Communist Party. I knew people when I was in China, older people who had given 
given everything for the communist ideal. I met this old guy who had actually fought against Western forces in Korea during the Korean War when the Chinese came to, to help the North Koreans. They were totally, these people were totally, utterly sold out to the communist ideal. For them, it was heaven on earth. And my mother-in-law has told me for the first few years after 1949 to about 1953-54, it was New China. When we were learning Mandarin, we were told the story of the soldier who sees the old lady carrying a big sack of rice or struggling with a big sack of rice, and he picks it up and carries it home for her. And he's the, this good, strong, handsome People's Liberation Army soldier. And she said, in all the old society, this wouldn't have happened. You'd have said, you know, who cares about you? But in New China, young, big, strong boys carry sacks of rice for old ladies. And my mother-in-law told me it really was like that. There was this sense of something new. And then you have all these tragic incidents in the history of modern China, which you can read about yourself anywhere, right through until this huge implosion in 1989. The, the destruction of faith in the communist ideal is massive. And how do you respond to that with the gospel to bring new hope, new ideas? But also, there are people who say, I can't believe in anything ever again. It's like someone who, who, who has been betrayed Betrayal is sometimes the word that people use. So there are people who are asking deep questions about the meaning of life. There are people who really want to know, and there's a tremendous amount of, of depth and need there. But at the same time, one of the challenges we found, and I think this is where it really meshes with the, with the text this morning, is that many of the mainland Chinese people we would talk to used to see the gospel as a kind of ism, a kind of ideology. And many would try to understand it as a, as a body of teaching or philosophy, which they could discuss and dissect, and it was great to talk about over a few beers, but, but they couldn't quite get to the point of personal faith. So it was useful, and, and it helped them, but it, it was floating at this kind of ideological level in a way that you might talk about existentialism or, or, or Marxism or any of the other isms. And it was hard to pull it down to them and say, look, it has to connect to you. It's, it's a personal faith which then, by all means, buy into the ism. But without the personal element, there is no ism to be, to be part of. So I think that's a very big challenge in working with them. Another thing from this passage, verse, verse 21, about the Athenians and the foreigners spent all our time talking about things and listening to latest ideas. There are many Chinese we used to talk to who would love to discuss but would not be willing to make any kind of commitment. They would talk with you round and round and round again about all these different ideas, and they loved the discussion. And they knew full well that we said, this requires a response. But in many cases, they wouldn't do it. So again, the idea of, you know, the gospel requires a response. Now, they don't appreciate being bashed over the head with the Bible or being zapped with the four spiritual laws. I'm supposed to spit on the ground when I say that, but it's not appropriate here. But it's, it's much more of, of a discussion, of an exchange, of the sharing of life, but at the same time saying, come on, cross over the line. So how does Paul begin to discuss with the Greeks in verse 22 to 23? I love this part. I think this is incredible. I love the way that Richard read it too. How does he begin? What's his opening gambit? I mean, this Paul is incredible. I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, what would we do as good, pucky evangelicals? Idolatry is wrong, you're all going to hell. End of conversation. <laughs> 
No, no, Paul, listen. Paul had familiarized himself with the Athenians. He understood their religious and philosophical milieu. He saw the seeking after truth. He saw these people looking for something beyond themselves, at least some of them. So his opening gambit is very well researched. So yes, the gospel is unchanging truth for all time. Amen to that. But at the same time, Paul, Paul contextualizes. He, he, he sets his idea within a certain context such that it makes sense to them. You see, he, at the same time as he was congratulating them on their religious nature, he was also challenging them. I used to talk with my students in Singapore about dialogical approaches to sharing the faith. I remember when I was working sometimes with students in the UK, I was criticized by my colleagues. Why don't you tell him to believe in Jesus? And I'd say, no, 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 no. Let them come out. Slowly, surely. And when they're not looking, boom. <laughs> That's the way to do it. So Paul is saying, yes, you're religious. You're clever. You think about all these things. But at the same time, he's saying, but actually, man-made idols don't really work, do they? Making a god is an exercise in futility. You see, in looking at created things and the question of ultimate reality, Paul seizes not upon an idol, pure and simple, but on an altar, which points beyond itself. It's very, very clever indeed. An altar is not an idol. And the matter of the unknown God may sound strange, but I think actually in this context it's extremely positive. You see, Athens was full of gods created by men and women, limited humankind creating limited gods. But by acknowledging an unknown God, the Athenians, in a sense, or at least Paul could put that spin on it, were admitting their helplessness and confessing perhaps there could be something bigger and better than themselves and which they had no chance of reaching. Certainly for Paul, the implication here is that an unknown God would need to reach down. And one of the fascinating things I learned from the Chinese students was the idea that everybody should have a belief. I remember many of them would say to me, yes, really important to believe in something. It was almost as if the act of believing was more important than the object. An unknown and unknowable God. And here's where it gets very interesting, perhaps controversial. You see, I think there are various bits and pieces of Chinese beliefs that we can use to point to the God of the Bible. It's a bit like the altar to the unknown God. Some of Confucius' teaching might remind us of the Psalms. The communists have always celebrated selflessness, as in the person of the revolutionary folk hero, Lei Feng. Consider the beginning to the Taoist scripture, Tao Te Ching. The way which can be described is not the true way, and the name that can be named is not the true name. It's not bad stuff, actually. The sense is, something is out there, and we cannot describe it fully. Amen to that. So Paul now proclaims the unknown God to the Athenians because this unknown God has revealed himself to Paul through the history of Paul's own Jewish people, the Old Testament self-revelation of God, this process which, which reaches its climax and completion in Jesus, the word become flesh. So Paul can proclaim boldly this unknown God because actually he's not unknown anymore. Now it's beautiful to me that in the Chinese Bible, in John chapter 1, the word for word is Tao, which not only reminds some readers of the Chinese idea of Tao, as in in the beginning was the word, 
Tai Chu Yo Dao. That Dao is the, is, means the same Dao of Taoism. So you can translate this word Dao means truth. It also means way. Now it's funny, you can go back to the Buddhist, uh, the, the Taoist scriptures and add a little correction or stretch it a bit further if you like, because I've done things like this with the Chinese. The way which can be described by people is not the true way. And the name which can be named by people is not the true name. But the way that describes itself and the name that reveals itself are the true way and the true name. Unknown is not the same as unknowable. And that is where we can really go in there and communicate that point. All right, verse 24 to 26. Again, think about how Paul unleashes the gospel on these people. How many Chinese people did I meet who said to me, why are you people always talking about hell and judgment and fire? Is there anything positive in your faith? Well, of course there is. But sometimes it's how we begin that can be difficult. So Paul, Paul kind of goes back to a kind of analogy of Genesis, if you like. He doesn't start with the bad stuff. He starts with the good stuff, and then he brings in the bad stuff at the appropriate time. He tells them about God. It's a classic great defense of the gospel. This God is completely other, with no physical home or representation. And again, for people who come from a background of wanting to make their gods, wanting to, to, to cast their gods in, in stone or metal or wood, it's very powerful. Do you really believe that the Lord of heaven and earth needs to live in a temple? How stupid is that, Paul is saying, without saying it to them, without insulting them. As if he needed anything because he himself gives all men and women life and breath and everything else. This is actually tremendously liberating, I think, for many people with a very scientific background, especially those from China. Their whole understanding of religion is something that we make and that we do. And this is turning everything upside down. He is independent. We are dependent. We did not create him. He created us. He is sovereign in his relations with men and women and has given a basic order to the world. Why? Verse 27. So that we would seek him. So that we might reach out for him and find him because actually he's not very far away at all. Now, for the Chinese, this would make the lights come on. He's just next to you almost. Depends on, on how you understand physics, right? And all that kind of stuff. But there's this whole tension between the transcendent and the imminent, between the God who is out there and the God who is inside. This sense of God being very far away, and there's Jesus who is the Word made flesh, who is in many ways not that different from us at all. I think the figure of Jesus is of great importance, obviously, but in dealing with the mainland Chinese, to show this kind of paradoxes. I remember the Chinese saying to me, your Bible is full of contradictions. I said, amen, but I call them paradoxes. Live with the paradoxes. Live in that space and make them come alive to communicate the gospel. And verse 28, I think, 27 and 28, but very, very important. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. You see, Paul here uses quotes from two Greek philosopher poets. And we're reminded here that there is an element of the truth about God known in every culture. All truth is God's truth. And so again, Paul is using their own ideas, their own wisdom, their own teaching to point to Jesus. Now, when I was teaching this kind of stuff in Singapore Bible College, my students would say, 
Dr. Paul, what about syncretism? I said, what about it? Do you think that when John uses the word logos for word in his gospel, he's not taking a risk? Do you think when Paul says, yeah, eat the food offered to idols to the Corinthians, who gives a heck? Idols are nothing. Do you think he's not taking a risk? Of course he's taking a risk. Do you think when God sends his son down to be incarnated, he's not taking a risk? Of course he's taking a risk. He's breaking all the rules. The same is here. Paul says, use Greek philosophy. Use Greek poetry to communicate the gospel. And that is what he does. And this location of the lives of men and women in God at once undercuts the Stoic and the Epicurean. It's very clever. We don't have time to unpack it this morning, but it's very clever. You see, our belonging to and dependence on God rule out rugged individualism and hedonistic pleasure-seeking. It kind of cuts both of them out at the bottom. Life is more complex than that. We are his offspring. And again, speaking into a context where there's been idolatry in verse 29, don't think the divine being is like Gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. We are created in God's image, not the other way around. If you're familiar with socialism, they drew on the ideas of Feuerbach, the idea about God being the projection of the human father and everything else. And this is very strong in mainland Chinese thinking. We're saying, no, 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 the other way around. Whatever the opposite of a projection is, that's us compared to God. Not a dejection, but something. Let me find a better word some other time, right? So it's not that we have made him big, it's that he's made us small. So if we, if we have thought and morality and right and wrong, don't imagine that God does not. Reducing God to a created thing lower than a man or a woman is so illogical. And here man's, God's, uh, man's design and skill are thus contrasted with the power and genius of God in verse 24. There's a kind of a, 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 an exchange going there between the two ways of looking at the things. Men are far, Men and women are far inferior to God. And of course this means, because of what's said in verse 29, God is not to be manipulated. Which is what people normally want to do with idols. And again, there was a warning here with us in working with the mainland Chinese. So they had a problem with their visa, or problem with their PhD thesis. So they'd say, we say, we pray for you. So we pray for their visa, we pray for their thesis. Now be careful with this, because you end up with the possibility of the vending machine God. You put the coin in, you press the code, and then the crisp or the coke come out of the bottom. And again, depending on which worldview you're coming from, it's easy to fall into that trap. And so they would say to us, if your God gives us the stuff we want, we'll believe in him. Or your God should give us the stuff we want. Which is fairly, it's natural, it makes common sense to them because that's the kind of religious background they come from. So it's this emphasis that we need on, on the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, the greatness of God. And his mercy does not mean the same as his being manipulated. All right, we're almost at the end. Verse 30 to 31. So we talk about the mercy of God, the greatness of God, how he undercuts human wisdom, all these wonderful things. And if some evangelicals have a problem with saying too much about hell and smelling fire and sulfur, some other evangelicals have a problem with not talking about it at all. But here's, the, here's where Paul has, Paul's been affirming them, he's been looking at their culture, he's been challenging them, he's done all the reasoning and backwards and forwards. Now he says, hang on a second, let me just make this point to you, you have to repent. So there's a time and a place to bring in the, the difficult bit, if you want to say. 
I think this is really crucial in how we used to work with the mainland Chinese, and it remains that today. Man has sinned and has gone against God. In the past, God has overlooked that. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He will judge the world, verse 31, with justice by the man he has appointed. And the proof of that is he raised him from the dead. And again, so many Chinese people we met were attracted by the love of Christians. And I found when we were working with uh, some of the, the FI people back in the day and the various churches I was involved in the north of England, many of the Chinese were very attracted by the love that the British Christians showed to them. It was actually really a wonderful experience. I know if you're British, you have to complain and say everything we do is wrong and evil and second rate. Actually, it isn't. And there's tremendous work from British Christians to mainland Chinese. So take it and believe it, even if you don't want to. But many of the Chinese people were attracted by this love, so we had to say yes, but there is this sense of judgment. God is righteous. God has moral requirements. And God can command because he has created. The universe is his. History is in his hand, verse 31. He will hold us to account. And again, judgment of one kind or another is a very common element in many world religions. I've been to the Potala Palace in Tibet, and I've been to various temples in, in China, of course. And you can see the 18 levels of hell described in glorious technicolor. Beautiful freezes of people being chopped and slashed and burned and buried alive and eaten by ants and everything else. So this theme of judgment is there in many, many world religions. So I think there's something we can build on, perhaps with less of the sense of glee of the Buddhist freezes, but there's still this sense of judgment, of course. And yet the wonderful thing is here that the person who will judge is the one who has been raised from the dead, none other, of course, than Jesus himself. And again, the point about this is he is qualified to judge because he has been us. This whole implication of the incarnation, what it means for Jesus to have been incarnate, and I believe remaining incarnate, extremely important. This, this emphasis on the humanity of Christ in a positive and, and sort of negative sense, if you like, in the sense of having gone through temptation, having walked this earth the same as us and our Chinese friends. Again, so different from traditional Chinese viewpoints or the process of societal development talked by the Marxists. Now, I said I'd stop at verse 32, and I will, because there's far much stuff more here than I thought I would have when I first agreed to preach. So it's a kind of a, an abrupt ending, if you like, but we could go on forever, so we won't. But verse 32, in a sense, again, encapsulates so much of our experience with the mainland Chinese. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. I can remember being so upset, being so crushed. I prepared this wonderful gospel talk in Chinese, and I socked it to them. And this guy said, that's just rubbish. <laughs> it's not a very good day when that happens to you. People sneer. But others say, we want to hear you again. This was so much our experience with the mainland Chinese. For some, their very scientific background, their Marxist thinking, the education system in China had meant they just could not deal with the idea of a resurrection. They lived in this kind of closed system universe where it's impossible for any intervention from outside to go because there's no, no outside anyway. It's like the guy who's stuck in a cave, you know, that, that story. Many sneer thinking that we are foolish. And so because they get stuck on the resurrection or perhaps on the creation, they reject this whole mighty edifice of Christianity. And really, if you press them, they can't 
articulate clearly why they have a problem. It's almost like it's a, a blind spot. Then again, there are many who say, yeah, this stuff sounds really weird, but it seems to work for you and for many others. So, in conclusion, this passage reminds me time and time again that truly there is nothing new under the sun. The basic human condition that Paul interacted with and that, that Paul challenged 2,000 years ago in Athens is to a greater or lesser extent mirrored today in Beijing, in China. It's a world apart in time and space, yes, but the human condition is essentially the same. And I think Paul's genius of researching his context, Paul's genius of simultaneously affirming and undermining his hearers, his conversation partners, is something that we need to learn from and to try to, to emulate in our own situation, in our own context. And above all, the glorious gospel keeps working. It keeps on keeping on, doing its vital work, and indeed, Athens has a great deal to do.